learning and studying renew your neurons. The brain is, is very plastic. So if you, again, you know, enter a class and put yourself, you know, to the test of memorizing things, in addition of becoming younger, because you will be probably meeting people who are younger than you, you also renew your brain. Hello and welcome to the Future of Universities podcast series. My name is Arno Meerman, CEO of UIN and your host for today. Today's episode is the second and last part of our conversation with Santiago Iniguez, president of IE University and Todd Davey, associate partner at UIN. Building on the previous discussion, also available on our Spotify channel, we continue to delve into the importance of lifelong learning and what benefits the personalization of education will bring to the current and future generations. We hope you will enjoy the conversation and insights from Santiago and Todd. One of the things that I've, we've used as a good practice example when we are discussing how universities are moving into a future orientation is the wow room at IE Business School. Now, the, the video room that you have. I wonder if you could just explain that to uh, to everybody about how that works and, and what that is. We can post, post some links in the chat so that people can actually have a look at that. But uh, maybe if you could just describe it. Um, perhaps, actually, before you do that, could you just explain what you mean by synchronous and asynchronous? Because there might, there might be a few people who weren't exactly sure what you meant by that. But if you could start with that and then explain the wow room, that'd be fantastic. Thanks very much. And, and thanks for, for the questions. And sometimes we take things, things for granted. No? <laughs> we talk the specialist uh, language. By, by synchronous, I mean uh, learning experiences happening at the same time. By asynchronous, we refer to those uh, methods that can take time, uh, that can take place, you know, over uh, over time, not necessarily at the same time. Uh, for example, a forum, a forum may take place, you know, during an entire week, so participants can actually enter and discuss at their own um, convenience, uh, as uh, the professor would do. Huh? And, and this means that uh, probably the momentum of learning uh, keeps uh, longer, which is a good thing because sometimes uh, classes happen very quickly. Whereas, you know, an asynchronous form of learning like uh, a forum or similar uh, formats can actually allow participants to interact, you know, at their own ease and uh, concepts and ideas get more fixed, no? And you have, of, of course, time for asking uh, questions, uh, clarifications, there's more engagement among participants. Of course, in order to make this fora, for example, become more enjoyable and more interactive, you always need, you know, a good moderator and it has to be the professor. You cannot just, you know, assign a, a tutor or, or a peer, no? Because in order to, to make the, the learning experience, no? Uh, run by someone who's the expert, then you need to appoint, you know, the the professor. So this is what I mean by synchronous and asynchronous. No, a class, uh, a class, uh, classroom-based session would be synchronous. Forum would be asynchronous. And then going to your question about <clears throat> the Wow Room, the Wow Room was launched uh, now. It has, I guess, at least uh, five years, five or more years. This was um, the concept, you know, resulted from our experience in interacting via. Uh, different platforms on, on streaming. 
And what we realized is that we could uh, replicate the form of a class uh, in order to enhance the experience, both for participants as well as, as for the professor. So we created a virtual room, an auditorium, which has uh, screens, one for each uh, student or participant, and the professor and the rest of the presenters were standing in the middle of the room, looking at the screens and uh, following the discussion and orchestrating the whole session. It was not just, you know, an amphitheater with uh, all the faces, of the guys, but it included also, it includes a number of apps that allows the professor and the rest of the participants uh, to um, follow very important things that I guess uh, are now becoming part of the learning analytics uh, part of the, of the process. For example, face recognition. You know that uh, professors uh, are very keen on following whether their audiences uh, understand what they explain, what they say. And you can read the room, if you like, by looking at the faces. Yeah. So there are apps currently, you know, for um, anticipating uh, or for foreseeing, you know, whether uh, your students are actually following the explanation or they are just, you know, or they are bored. Of course, these may be, these more may add, you know, more stress to the professor because it may become a sort of vicious circle. Sometimes if you realize that your students are bored, then you become more stressed. And But anyway, this gathers lots of information in, for the professor in order to enhance some uh, part of the explanation of the class or in order to repeat things that uh, may not be clear. Just to use some app, of course, the, the format of the WOW Room also provides the best uh, scene in order to for example, visit virtually places that participants are not able to, to visit at that time. They also allow for interaction between uh, participants in presence and participants online. So it, it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Uh, but the good thing about our WOW room was that it was not, you know, a, a, a studio production. Uh, the good thing about uh, our solution was that it could actually be run by the professor. So you didn't need actually a, a whole production team behind the scenes, you know, which is very costly and would make, you know, the whole process undoable for most institutions. This, this only required, you know, a supporting services team for uh, the entire um, WOW rooms that were in operation with the professor managing uh, their own, you know, class. So it was very convenient and very economic for institutions. Of course, to be very honest, what we now realize is that after the pandemic, uh, undergraduate students in particular, the youngsters, are very keen on returning to face-to-face -to -face experience. So on the other hand, uh, executives have discovered, you know, the virtues of online learning. So uh, it has happened, you know, the reverse thing. Now executives and uh, companies hire more online and blended education whereas youngsters are very keen to socialize and come in presence, you know, to, to, to the campus. Maybe that's a good time to pick up just one of the focuses that I wanted to bring to the, the discussion today was around lifelong learning um, and the notion of never actually leaving the university environment because you'll spend the rest of your life either returning or revisiting concepts. Um, as you said, reinventing yourself, upskilling yourself, reskilling, uh, all those concepts. So I just wanted to explore a little bit 
um, about your opinion of how, what is the role of universities in this lifelong learning um, activity? I think it's key and, and it should become even more important in the future because universities have, have been present in this segment mostly through their extension units. The idea was, you know, to use uh, the excedent uh, part of the faculty to teach, you know, parts of the population that didn't have access uh, to uh, regular degrees. No, but now we, we we need to think about this increasing size of the population, which is the the adult population. This is happening for sure in Europe, but also in some other Asian countries, China, Japan, for sure. Given life expectancy and given the uh, very expectable, you know, uh, expansion of the time of retirement. What we all need is uh, probably to come back to universities uh, my, maybe three or four times during our professional careers because the content of jobs will change. The environment will certainly change. And uh, you cannot live up uh, with uh, the same degree that you earned 40 years ago and exert, you know, the same profession. It's like uh, accountants or doctors. They need to go back, you know, and refresh their knowledge. Doctors today, um, you know, practice, uh, do, do a practice that, that is very different to the one that they learned at, at school. The same applies to accountants. They, they need to revalidate their uh, knowledge in accountancy every five years. So the same app is applicable to any other profession. Even uh, to areas like the humanities where, some people may think, you know, that, uh, well, Z0 is eternal. Well, there's many different readings, readings about Cicero. So you need to learn, you know, what has been published about the classics no, recently. So I very much encourage no, um, adults to think about uh, um, lifelong learning, but not just in order to update their knowledge or reskilling or upskilling, but also for two other reasons you know the first one is because you can reinvent yourself as you were suggesting and you can change careers you can uh, transform yourself in the ideal person uh, you dreamt in your early years but you couldn't actually achieve and second because uh, learning and studying actually renew your neurons and this is actually shown by recent uh, discoveries in neurobiology i mean the fact is that the brain is is very plastic. So if you, again, you know, enter a class and put yourself, you know, to the test of memorizing things and using, you know, those intellectual capabilities, then in addition of becoming younger, because you will be probably meeting people who are younger than you and you will see what other concerns and you will understand society much better, you also uh, renew your brain which is vital, you know, in order to leave. Uh, it's something similar to what we do when, when we go to the fitness center. I mean, we want to keep fitted and agile. Well, we need to do something similar with our brains. I'm going to take a quote from you on that one, which is learning and studying renews your neurons. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a unique uh, perspective that you've brought there. I think that's fantastic. Um, we have a question from Marco Savage. When mentioning personalization, do you consider skills frameworks? Uh, if you do, um, we'll come to the second question. Yes, we consider skills, uh, preferences, um, Imagine, for example, that people can, uh, that, that they are, you know, fans of uh, soccer, let's say. Um, 
and uh, you want to explain uh, maths, the basic of maths. I mean, this is a very typical example. No, so if if you actually use examples and references from soccer, you'll probably get uh, much better results than using. You know, I wonder whether you studied with the traditional problems that I still re recall. You know, if a train leaves CTA, you know, at that time, what time does it arrive at CTV? Which I mean, I mean. Many people didn't actually uh, take trains, no, or were not that familiarized. So, the question about uh, personalizing uh, the education has to do with making it more enjoyable, more uh, familiar, and uh, and people learn better and faster when they deal with uh, familiar, you know, environments with things that uh, they already know. And, and of course, this also applies to skills. Uh, allow me to put you an example. Um, you can actually learn how to become more inclusive and how to respect uh, diversity by using the metaverse and uh, assigning one of the students, you know, the opposite sex uh, that uh, that person has. Or even, you know, assume, let's say, a transgender avatar and uh, deal, you know, with the problems that a transgender may face, you know, in a company and see uh, how that person, you know, afterwards uh, shares, you know, the feedback of the experience. Um, so these sorts of exercises can actually uh, make the, ed the education much more personalized. Of course, not to talk about uh, learning analytics. What we try is to collect data about the performance of our students over time. So if you have a personalized, uh, you know, sorts of information of a database on the individual, how they have performed on different uh, areas and key, uh, um, key, you know, KPIs in order to uh, see the evolution over time, then the education can become, you know, much more personalized and you can provide feedback and even mentorship uh, to that person in order to strengthen those areas where there might be weaknesses. Okay. I think you also just wanted a second point, which was around how do you bring that into uh, the context of a, a formal learning recognition? I guess, you know, this has to do, you, you mean recognition, I guess, by uh, the student. Oh, I see. In, in the end, you know, this is something quite interesting. No, I guess we still need some years, you know, in order to be so personalized because unfortunately you know the way degrees are structured and provided today are very standardized so uh i i wish you know we uh we we reach at some stage the time when degrees and certificates can be so personalized that they capture you know the very essence of each of the students unfortunately now what universities can provide you know is a degree or a certificate that assesses and uh, and that tells you know the rest of the world that you are good at something, um, but uh, but in time I'm I'm sure that we will see you know more personalized, more uh, adaptive sorts of degrees and certificates for sure, and we will discover many new skills. I think that question therefore is answered. We've got another question from Sebastian Matos Palio. Uh, the question is: Do you think that the massive implementation of micro-credentials in universities would lead then to excessive marketization of higher education. 
So <laughs> essentially the effect of micro-credentials on, on the institution. I, I guess micro-credentials and micro, uh, this is actually a fact, no? If you look at, uh, let's say, LinkedIn, uh, most of uh, the members highlight in their bios. At first, you know, the first line are the micro-credentials and the, the certificates that they, they have obtained, particularly if they come from leading universities, no? For, for two reasons. First, because uh, they are more updated. So it shows, you know, that uh, the member is um, updating uh, their education. No? I mean, they, they are very much concerned about uh, lifelong learning. And the second reason is because in many of the cases, of course, those certificates and uh, micro-credentials come from leading institutions. So users themselves, you know, uh, enhance uh, very much this. And, and, and at some stage, I have talked to colleagues at LinkedIn uh, because I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn, no? and I'm, uh, I was lucky to, to be selected as an influencer, but I've told LinkedIn that we should probably think about how to assess the validity of uh, certificates and micro-credentials because there's, there's no agency actually that assesses, you know, the, val the validity of those. Whereas if you say you hold a degree from some university, you can always check with the registers, you know, whether that's uh, true or not. So going to your question, I guess, and I've always defended this, massive education uh, has a social mission. And I very much, you know, defend all sorts of education in whatever form, either uh, they are massive or uh, personalized or because education is good. Having said this, many of, uh, of the promises of massive education have not been fulfilled. Years ago, the, the MOOCs, no? the Massive Online Open Courses, the dream was uh, to reach out to those countries and societies that uh, couldn't have access to higher education. The fact is that if you look at the profile of most of the uh, users of MOOCs, uh, they are already graduates uh, and people from Western uh, and um, Northern Hemisphere uh, countries. So this is, for example, one of the things that uh, has not been reached. No, But, but the fact is that uh, they provide a social mission they offer, you know, reasonable uh, learning at a decent cost. And I expect, you know, these micro-credentials will continue to grow in the future. But at the same time, what I uh, guess is that universities are now climbing down a curve of experience. And we will keep improving no? the, ex the experience and, and also making more sophisticated sorts of tools. In a fascinating discussion and journey we've had over the last uh, 50 minutes, the time has flown. Um, but I, so I just wanted to finish off with a couple of last questions. I was fascinated by the fact that you mentioned that you're still teaching as a president. How important do you think that is that the president or the head of an institution such as a university continues to actually uh, do the activities that they are responsible for, whether it's education, might even be research as well, but how important do you think that is? Well, I, I think it's quite important, you know, to be very honest. I, I write my own articles to start with. No, I sometimes, sometimes, you know, particularly by CEOs, eh? I'm asked, uh, who is your shadow writer? Eh? And, and the fact, you know, what I respond, well, this is what I enjoy. I mean, writing and researching and, and teaching. Teaching keeps me, you know, I hope, keeps me, you know, in the mood and fitted, no? 
and uh, connects me with uh, the concerns of, of the youngsters and uh, different generations. So if I become just uh, an administrator or a CEO, it would be too boring, yeah? too boring. And, and the experience will be, you know, much, uh, much more narrow. So I very much encourage other uh, deans and presidents and uh, program administrators not to give up teaching nor researching, no? because in order to become a well-rounded academic, you need to, to do the three things. I have one final question for you. Um, in the Future University Thought Book series, what we have seen is um, quite a range of different perspectives, as, as you can imagine, about the future. What we wanted to do was invite um, those that contributed, the, uh, the leaders of higher education, government, business, um, as well as entrepreneurship, we wanted to challenge them to, to imagine a future and how the university would exist within it. And as I said, we had quite a range. We had everything from catastrophe for the university to business as usual with some, some slightly new new things. So I, I wanted to know from your perspective, where do you land on that on that spectrum? Where do you think in 10, 20, 30 years time the university will be and what will it what, what will it be doing? That, that, that's a very interesting question. And, and universities have lot, lots of challenges, no? If I may add, you know, uh, a further one, I guess universal access to education is one of uh, you know the major concerns that uh, most educators have, no? since we all realize that education is the key engine in order to transform society. So providing real universal access based on, and I realize that merit, the concept of merit, you know, meritocracy is very much questioned these days. And we probably need, you know, to redefine what is merit. But anyway, universal access to education. But going to your question also, I guess that universities need you know to be closer to the to the to the real world and uh, connect many are uh, let's be very honest and uh, sometimes you know universities are the target of uh, unfound and uh, unfair you know criticisms because many of them are very well connected uh, with companies but probably research as such should uh, be connected with the real problems at companies at organizations so what I would uh, foster and favor, you know, is more links and more bridges with the professions and exposing academics more to the actual problems of the world. I always recall, you know, a, a sentence from Umberto Eco, the Italian Nobel Prize winner, the writer. Umberto Eco used to say that asking an academic for a remedy, for a solution to any real problem would be to, like asking Plato for a remedy uh, to the gastritis, which is, is not, I don't agree. I mean, Plato provides many remedies, including gastritis, because if you enjoy philosophy and realize that philosophy can give meaning to your life, then, I mean, that's uh, food for your brain and for your mind. But anyway, uh, I... I uh, I actually, you know, disagree with Umberto Eco. I guess that academics cannot just be, you know, at the forefront of demonstrations or just, you know, write articles and pieces in journals. They should get engaged in the actual issues of the real world. No, uh, 
but anyway, I realize uh, that uh, there's many opinions here. We probably need many different uh, academics and diversity is also very much welcome here. Fantastic. Santiago, I really appreciated uh, the time you've de dedicated to our fireside chat today and some of the insights and thoughts that you've shared. I think there's been something for everybody, whether it's been at more of a, um, a macro level or uh, looking at some micro examples, more at a, a theoretical, if you like, or a, um, just a broader level about the university down to a very practical level. I think it's been a fascinating, as I said, journey earlier. I think um, you've provided uh, from that perspective, I think some really concrete insights that many of the listeners can take forward. So I guess it's it's my great pleasure to, again, thank you for joining us today. Santiago Iniguez uh, is the president of IE University, and we thank him very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Santiago. Thanks very much, Todd. Uh, thanks for having me here. Again, it has been a great pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, the best of luck. Congratulations for your program. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's discussion. Stay tuned for the next episode on the Future of Universities podcast series. Follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and don't forget to sign up for our podcast newsletter at uin.org.